everybody, this is Tanya Nayak and you're listening to The Break. As you know, this podcast is all about inspiring stories, inspiring journeys, inspiring careers, inspiring people. And I love to really dig deep and kind of find out what it was about the journey that got them to where they are today. Today's interview is with Alex Dixon. He is the CEO of Q Casino in Dubuque, Iowa. Try spelling Dubuque. I'm telling you, it's not as easy as you think. This man has a story, and let me tell you, he's one of very few African-American CEOs in the gaming industry. The challenges that his family had to overcome through the years and generationally is mind-blowing. Alex is a young guy with what seems like a lifetime of experience, and I'm really excited for you to hear how motivated he is and how outgoing he is, and also the obstacles that he had to go through in order to get to where he is today. I'm excited for you to hear his journey. Take a listen. Alex Dixon, how are you? Outstanding. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. All right. Let's get right to it here because I will say that when I ever came up with this idea for this podcast, you, Alex Dixon, and what you do and what you've become and made of your life is the very reason why I wanted to do this podcast because I find it so fascinating to meet people who have had a journey and have come out with one of these types of jobs that are so unique and so interesting and so different but to hear how you got there is really what I wanted to have this conversation about because my goal is to inspire, motivate, encourage people who maybe get stuck in a little bit of a rut, maybe don't feel like they can do it or they have obstacles that they're dealing with. And I am sure you have had obstacles. I know I've had obstacles. We all have, right? So that's uh, that's really what I wanted to, to chat with you about and you really truly are the perfect quintessential guest. So do you want to give a little background to the listeners about what it is that you're doing right now? No, absolutely. And just just by way of introduction, again, Alex Dixon, I humbly serve as the president and CEO of uh, Q Casino and DRA in Dubuque, Iowa. Um, And so but but any conversation of my engagement in in, in casinos or or in corporate America really starts with my background and and kind of where I came from. And so I'm I'm very blessed to be a third generation, uh, really casino hospitality employee. Uh, our family on my, my mother's side uh, came from Tallulah, Louisiana, um, and so they, they left the cotton fields of Louisiana and went west, much like a lot of people went from Mississippi and went north to Chicago. I think uh, most of my family was headed to either San Francisco or L.A., but uh, I think we must have ran out of gas in Las Vegas, and so we, uh, we started a life, and so we were out there in the 50s. My grandparents and she, my grandmother was a, a housekeeper, um, and so she raised nine kids um, wow. uh, there in Las Vegas. And at the time, Vegas was, was very segregated. And um, when uh, she first uh, got there, uh, many African-Americans couldn't walk into the front door of the casinos on the Las Vegas Strip. And so that didn't what, really what, change. What time frame was that? Like 1960. Like... March of no. 1960 was I, the first time. Can you even time, imagine? Uh, yeah. Not that far, not that far distance, and so thankful to, to to folks like Frank Sinatra, who really spoke up for uh, folks that he played with. I mean, um, Sammy Davis Jr. You know would would perform in the in the casinos, uh, but then wasn't able to stay uh, in the hotels at night, and so he unbelievable. Would, he, he would come stay with us, you know, and so it, it's uh, it truly a pleasure. Fast forward, um, a lot you know took place. My dad uh, was stationed out in Las Vegas. He got there through Nellis Air Force Base. Uh-huh. And so that's how he was he was stationed there. And after 
um, serving his time uh, in the country. He joined, um, you know, Flamingo. He was a bar back. But again, uh, there were limitations to what African-Americans could do. And so up until 1971, uh, really, you could only be a a frontline porter or maid or, or, or cook. And so later, he was able to be promoted to a bartender, which... It's a small deal, but from a financial perspective, it's a big Huge. difference going from yes. making making tips to having someone else pay you out based upon their tips. And anybody who's worked hospitality, yeah. it's um, you know being in control of your own destiny, even as an entrepreneur, from that perspective of being a bartender is a big deal. And so I'm a direct beneficiary of, of both of those changes in Las Vegas. And so, um, so then from there, you know, my story is really universal. I, I mean... Born and raised in Vegas, then went to Howard University, Washington, D.C. I started excellent, um, excellent school. with uh, Goldman Sachs right out of college in New York, then London, then L.A. Met my wife in L.A. We moved to Vegas, uh, started the family, and then um, started in casino world and moved to Baltimore, opened up a casino. I was assistant general manager there, uh, moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, about an hour and a half west of Boston. Mm-hmm. I was the general manager of MD in Springfield and then moved back to Las Vegas. I was president and chief operating officer at uh, Circus Circus. Uh, left there when MGM sold the company. I was running a laundry company for a while. And then I got a call about a CEO in Dubuque, Iowa. Yeah, of all places. <laughs> and um, never been to Iowa, never been to Dubuque. But I fell in love with the business model. And so I'm sure we'll talk more about this. But uh, we are one of two nonprofit casinos in America. Uh, one third of our profits goes directly back to the city, um, and it pays for police, fire, you know, all the uh, parks and recs uh, that you think of a city. One third goes directly to charities. Love that. Um, and then another third goes to um, goes to de- development on this island where we sit. Um, so all of our profits go back to the community, and uh, I wake up and go to bed thinking about how do we make our community better. And um, I couldn't be more happy not only to be with you, but really to be leading this organization as we uh, take our next steps um, as we develop this great island in the Mississippi where we sit. So wild. And, and to think that uh, so basically the city owns the casino. Is that the how that works? The city owns the casino. The city yeah. owns the casino. And, and so we uh, we are a, a quasi public private entity, the DRA. Um, mm-hmm. But we really were founded in uh, when the city was on its back legs. And so back in the mid 80s, Dubuque, you know, like a lot of Midwestern towns, as industry left, uh, was really down on its luck. And so it organized this group called the Dubuque Racing Association to bring Greyhound Racing to Dubuque, Iowa. It formulated as a nonprofit. And then through the years, that nonprofit earned a, a casino license. And so we added slots and we became a full casino. Um, and so in the state of Iowa, it's, I tell people, Iowa legislates nice. And so a lot of other places, you know, they, they want to be nice and try to be nice here. It's written into law that we will give away at least 3% of our, um, of our revenues back to, to charities. Um, love that. I just um, love that so much. Above and beyond that, though, because we're owned by the city, and again, we, we don't pay federal tax because we basically are no different than any other arm of the city city government in some some fashions. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, the community really gets the benefit of uh, the strong economic uh, returns that we provide. And so I, I, I just fell in love with it and I had never heard of it up until a year ago. And now uh, I think a lot of communities 
particularly in rural America where, where I am today, and I didn't grow up in rural America, um, but it does great things for our community, and I think you can do a lot of great things uh, using this model in other parts of the country. So do you see a lot more of these popping up now? Is it, no, this so, is a great so model much of this is now what I'm, I'm trying to do and our board and our organization community, you know, we've toiled along and we've done great things, but in, you know, in Dubuque, we're not a big population center and not every time we don't have an opportunities to engage with you and, and others. But now I'm starting to tell this story from the rooftops because I think in a, just get this, in a community of 60,000 people, yeah. we generate probably top line $55 million of revenue, but we'll return nearly $20 million in the form of rent, mm-hmm. property taxes, and in distributions to the community. You know, tomorrow night we're going to kick off where we're going to have over 200 people in a room uh, representing 100 different organizations where we'll give away $4 million philanthropically in our community, again, of 60,000 people. And so to that end, it, it's been simply amazing. And I don't think enough people know the story. And now we want to tell it. And we have uh, uh, are launching a new website, DRADubuke.com, tomorrow. People should follow us on LinkedIn at DRA uh, as well as Facebook. And so all these are going to be opportunities so that when Georgia opens up gaming, when New York expands, when Illinois expands, when other places even here in Iowa, I think people should look towards this nonprofit gaming model as a way to be able to help make an impact in your community that's just different. It may not be best everywhere, but here in our community, uh, it's, it's worked out well. Can we talk a little bit about how you got there? <laughs> you know, this, this journey? You had mentioned that your grandmother uh, had nine kids, so this is a huge family. That she, was she a single mom? No, so uh, uh, was fortunate. Uh, my grandfather, I did not know him on, on that side, um, but uh, for a big part of her her, her life, raised uh, them without um, my grandfather in in because uh, he had passed away. I, I'm very fortunate. I'm extremely privileged, and even as, you know, as a black man in America, I can still talk about my privilege. And I was fortunate. Mm-hmm. I was raised in a great middle class kind of background, um, but that was from. The shoulders of the giants I stood before, which, you know, my parents and my grandparents, the things that I face are first world problems. I want to pay it forward by particularly for other young black African-American executives to help them along the way. Uh, I know I'm unique Mm. in terms of number, but if I think about the things I face versus the challenges my grandmother leaving the cotton fields of Louisiana, going to Las Vegas, nothing compares to that. You know, you talk about some challenges that you went through as a kid. Can you tell me about some of those? Where I was growing up in, let's say, in in Vegas, again, great, let's say, background where I had everyone, let's say, rooting for me. But uh, again, I I was always one of the very few kind of black kids in, in, let's say, in my class or or let's say when a school. And so, so much of, you know, as you come of age and become an adult, it's important that you have one of these life defining experiences. And for me, that was attending Howard University in D.C. Yes. And so what you quickly realize is to be able to say, hey, look, you get to school and everybody's sharp. Everyone's intelligent. You have kids from the big cities, from small cities, from uh, I was really impressed with my Caribbean you know, brothers and sisters and like how they would approach come to school. And so one of the most challenging things for me was when I started at Goldman Sachs and I quickly realized to be able to say, hey, I've been on a, let's say, a very uh, A-type 
driven linear path from the time I was six up until the time I was 25. And I really had a um, to kind of a, a, a coming to grips with myself as to who I wanted to be because I quickly realized and said, hey, to continue on this path, I need to be like the valedictorian where I'm the, the captain of the football team. And so, but mm-hmm. because I've been the captain of the football team since birth, I've never known how to, to deal either with failure or having an understanding of, hey, it's time to step away. And so no different than a, like a professional athlete not really understanding when's the time to hang it up. It was really hard for you're talking about Tom Brady. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Boston girl. It's Watch hard. What you say. <laughs> it's hard. And so for me, I people people tell you how to apply for jobs, but people don't tell you how to leave a job. Right. That is such an interesting point. You're right about that. I didn't know how to leave. So I, I had been in, in banking, let's say, for five years. And it's one of these, you know, your your nose to the grindstone, working 100 hours a week. But by this time, I was 25 young, making good money. But now I was a dad moving in responsible for not only, you know, my wife and now growing family, but I was unhappy at work and I didn't know how to leave when I was at this boot, you know, I was at a boutique investment bank in Vegas, but I had always been on this track of just stay on the track and get, you know, keep going up the ladder. And I didn't Mm -hmm. know how to get off of it. And so one day I just got up and walked out and left and I was missing for a day. And, you know, I ended up sleeping in the park and my dad found me. And it was just, it was tough. Wow. Whoa. Wait, I want to hear about this because I think what you're talking about happens to a lot of people, right? They, you're, you're at a successful job. You're checking all the boxes. Everybody's proud of you. You're doing this, you know, but you're not happy. I was just unhappy. I, I was, I just, I was burnt out. Like, I mean, it just, and so it mm-hmm. was people talk, you know, you'll see the Facebook, you see LinkedIn of all the jobs, let's say that you got, or, you know, they don't, I don't post right. about the, you know, the, the board seats that I didn't get or the jobs that I didn't get, you know, you see the accomplishment, but this one was tough because it was the first time in my life where I said, hold on. Yes. Just because I can doesn't mean I should, but I didn't have the vocabulary to be able to speak to say the situation I'm in, I'm unhappy and I want to do something different, but I don't know how to articulate that. And I don't know how to leave without looking like I'm defeated or I'm not good enough. And so fortunately, like I've been a networker all my life, you know, and some of my kindergarten networking is finally paying off now, you know, 40 years later. But yeah, (laughs) but but fortunately, I was able to bounce back, you know, my wife, family and kids were there to help support. But I think for so many of us um, who are, let's say, either A types or on uh, climbing the corporate ladder, you've what I was very fortunate to learn early in my career is one, it could all be gone in a minute. Two, you've got to have the self-confidence that your your self-worth cannot be tied to your W-2. It sounds like it was a pretty heavy, heavy uh, moment for you to walk out sleep on a bench. You had a lot to think about. I'm sure a lot was going through your head. And I feel like what maybe, and you can obviously speak to me more about this, but were you worried about letting people down in your life? Were you worried about letting yourself down? What was the biggest issue right there when you said, I can't do that? Were you not, you weren't feeling like you're being fulfilled? Happiness wise were. So much of it was being able to Going from what I call an individual contributor, meaning I was able to go through life 
um, you know, at, you know, just as a young person. So again, I was 25, 26 at the, you know, at the time. And you go through life's ups and downs, and you can figure it out on your, you know, on your own. But when you now become, let's say, a father, a husband, um, and then you have work, um, and then no longer making the, you know, the really, really good money I was making at Goldman at the time on a relative basis, to kind of being out there, I tell people like I had all right revenue. But I had all right expenses. So now, you know, an all right, less all right doesn't leave, you know, doesn't doesn't leave a whole lot. <laughs> right. That's Cancels it. each so other. <laughs> it was for the first time in my life, you know, it was like, hold on, I'm like struggling to make ends meet, but I'm I shouldn't be. Yeah. Because like I should be hey, what are you what are you talking about? Like I just you know, whatever. But it it's so you if you take that financial burden, you take the just really self-reflective burden to be able to say, hey, look, in order to be a good father, I got to be around. And this job doesn't allow me to be around. And so uh, it was just, it was hard. And then just getting getting um, established in the first year of a marriage, right? And so all these things different playing is that you kind of then peel back the layers and be able to say, okay, well, what am I doing here? Like, I mean, just literally, what am I doing? And um, yeah, and so I would just stay. My my coping mechanism was to sleep under my desk and just keep working, and just keep working. That's how you equated success. Probably the more I work, you know, the more successful I'll be. That's it. And so then it came to a point where just like, look, you know, my body, my body told me you physically have to leave this environment. I now know how to lead jobs because I did it very very badly once, and so but I learned that lesson. You learned the lesson. Wait, do you remember what your father said to you when he found you that day? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, he had a flashlight. He came because I had like made my way back. It was in the Wells Fargo um, parking lot, um, Wells Fargo Tower, uh, right off of Howard Hughes in Vegas. And he tapped on the window and, you know, I, I, you know, it's, I don't quite remember what he said, but he gave me a hug. Right. Yeah. That's all you needed at that moment. I don't care what you went through, whatever else, but he was out there. And so, you know, my, I, I left for a long time right after high school. You know, I was in, you know, D.C., then New York, then London, and L.A. And But I always had this notion in my head that if the ish hit the fan, you know, I could always go back mm-hmm. home to mom, dad, to my twin bed. And so I never would have thought yes. I would be living 10 minutes away from my dad and needed him. But he was right there in that moment where you just needed that fatherly love and to say, hey, look, this isn't you. And like. You know, so I was out of work for a while, but figured it out. And, and you know, it was a tough decade kind of getting our way out of that. But um, but you look, we made it through. Just to know you have the support. Yeah, it was it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like when you when you have the love of your family, it's huge. And, you know, I'll never forget one time when I was uh, back in my old bartending heyday. <laughs> I remember I was going to school and my friends were going on a trip. This is this is like pales in comparison to like where you were at financially at all of these moments. But it was just what my mother had said to me that I'll always remember that I always take with me is that I was like, Mom, I'm broke. Blah, blah, blah. And she was like, Tanya, listen to me. She goes, you're never, ever, ever going to be broke. As long as we're alive, as long as we're here, you will always have us. So don't ever think that, and, you know, and I, I've i always taken that with me to take bigger risks, to know it's okay and, and to follow my heart and be happy doing what I love doing, you know, and I, I think so many people can relate to what you're saying where they equate working more hours, harder, longer because they equate it to 
some level of success when that's not actually the truth. The truth is, in my opinion, success is balance, family time, love, you know, doing, giving back. Like that's it, success. It is. And, and Tanya, what you speak of is almost the insurance policy that so many um, people in America, you know, because, you know, so many people live check to check is that it is difficult to be able to not only provide that sense of semblance of of safety, security for your own self, but that insurance policy that my parents gave me without, you know, sending money or without doing any number of things gave me the confidence to go out and conquer the world. Yes. And so I think as people talk about breaking generational curses, it's never these we need to we need to create more insurance policies for our kids to go and be great. Yeah. And I'm, you know, very fortunate that we're having, you know, very intentional conversations, not only with our kids, but um, getting a financial planner for the first time to be able to say, hey, you've got to make sure that you're able to not only pay this forward, that my goal that my parents had for me was to have that balance and that insurance policy. My goal now for my kids is that I'm not only just to be able to have a back, let's say, drop, but I can make an equity investment in their dreams. And that's a that's a big that's a big difference. It's good. That's a big right. difference that's of get, being able to get venture capital to go and start something that you want to be great at versus just knowing that says, hey, if I try, I know I've got a, a, a warm bed back at home. Um, and that's the responsibility of our generation is we've got to not only just provide a backdrop, but to make equity investments in our kids' lives. So would you say that that moment was, quite frankly, your big break? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I wouldn't say, let's call it, that moment was my big break. I think that one was, mm -hmm. regardless of my, let's say, professional career, right? That moment could have broken me. And so to that end, is like, I'm grateful that there was someone looking out for me, not only just my father, but like a higher power, um, looking out for me that um, that I didn't go off to mm -hmm. a different place because when you don't have sleep, when you really haven't eaten, when you're not in the right state of mind, right? Like that, there's places that you know, sitting back up, you know, as a CEO of a casino, like that was the last thing that was on my mind. Let's say that day. So my my break came when my you know when my mm -hmm. father, let's say, just kind right. of even before that night, instilled in me the confidence to bounce back. But what I would say is from from a professional notion, you know, one of the things I realized in Vegas when I was at um, um, at one of the larger multinational corporations there, sometimes you realize that sometimes you've got to go out in order to go up. And so what the big difference for me was when I was in Vegas, I recognized when Maryland was open up gaming and they said, hey, we're going to be building a casino in Baltimore. I said, hey, I better like put my hat in a ring to be able to get out there and figure it out. And so I was 32 and I went from being what's called an individual contributor to now uh, being responsible for 2000 employees. Um, and so I had never really worked in hospitality, never worked, you know, in food and beverage or all these different things. And so Baltimore was my big break. That went from being just someone with promise who can do a good spreadsheet, who has a good pedigree to okay no it was you know it was a it was dirt before we got there and after 
we employed 2,200 people, and they're now disciples of people who are working in the business, who I remember started out as, you know, whether it's an intern or came on, um, you know, an hourly role, and now are directors and vice presidents, and, and that just warms my heart of just seeing how people have developed over the years. Did it come quickly for you, this this next job here, or was it a bit of interviewing and, you know, putting your name out there? It was interesting because it was... Um, you know, again, I'd never heard of Dubuque, really never heard of this business model. Didn't know how to spell it the way you, you do because yeah, you're so smart. Yeah. D-U-B-U-Q-U-E. <laughs> yeah. so I still say it out loud. But but no, it was uh, it was I originally took it because I said, look, I always take the call just to understand the opportunity. I knew one day I wanted to be a CEO, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, CEOs, it's in the gaming industry. It's it's hard to go from a general manager at these right. places that have like a lot of properties. It's like. Think of being a GM in Target. Like, yes, right. you're the general manager of a big Target store, but there's 500 Target stores, you know. So in this case, to go from, um, you know, standalone kind of, let's say, general manager uh, to CEO, no, no matter what the size was, sometimes you got to go out to go up. And so okay. took the call, understood the business model, looked at the P&L, looked at the balance sheet, looked at the uh, how was the outlook. All those things kind of said, OK, yeah, this makes sense. Um, it was the right size. Some of it's being self-aware. So I'm 41. Yeah. Um, you know, the size of the business is probably the smallest that I've I've run. But mm-hmm. what you quickly realize is that the decisions you make as a CEO, just because there are more zeros behind it, yeah, there's add some complexity. But the same components are, are the difference. And so through the process, I went through, and it was amazing because here. I felt as they were asking me about my vision, whereas in Vegas and very much it was like, hey, we want you to come in and grind it out or work your butt off in the formula. Where here was create the formula. And that was a tremendous opportunity to be able to exercise a level of creativity. And they say, hey, where are we headed? Or or help us get to materialize our vision. And it's just been amazing because I'm at the happiest professional as well as personal place I've ever been in my career. But I tell people, you're never going to find the perfect job at the perfect pay in the perfect place at the perfect time. That's right. You got to figure out which one of those are you willing to sacrifice. You got you got to create it to some level. Yeah, exactly. And and I feel like you were you were gifted this blank slate to say, hey, come to us with your ideas. And I feel like when people get are given that platform, they become accountable. Right. So if, if you're micromanaged or people are constantly telling you, nope, do it this way, they're not allowing you the reason they hired you to do what you do. And so luckily you had the right right people there that believed in you and gave you that platform. No, I'm, I'm grateful for our board. I'm grateful for our community to be able to not only have the platform, but to be able to be entrusted to help lead. And so um, it's been the most welcoming um, place you ever could imagine. I'm very grateful that that our family's been welcomed, and I hope that anyone who comes to the community who is largely coming from, um, you know, from from whether it's big cities or other uh, rural communities in the town have the same experience, which I did, which was someone to be welcomed, um, valued, appreciated. Um, We haven't always necessarily done that in the past, but we've got to make sure that uh, going to the future, if we're going to grow our population, like what we're looking to do, we got to pull people out of poverty. Improve the, improve the quality of life by having great amenities and, and keeping our young people here. Um, so many of our young people in rural communities like ours 
are flocking to other big cities. And so we've got to make sure that, uh, um, that there's a place and a home for them in places like Dubuque, Iowa, where I am today. Yeah, and I know you have a very interesting leadership style. I did a little read up on you, and I, I do you want to talk a little bit about this, what you do with your teams at all different levels? Yeah, you've got to you not only just manage by walking around, but you've got to actually do the job. I mean, it's it's so amazing. Um, you know, you spend time with your frontline team, and it's one thing to be able to look at reports and understand what people are facing. But what you have to do that if you want to understand the role of a barback like you know my my dad which he was you've got to go pull a shift you know three four hours go wear the uniform go um have an understanding understand where they where they eat where do they sit when they take breaks when they want to go sm- i don't smoke but you know look where's the smoke break and i went out to the smoke break i'm like look this isn't a place where i'd want people you know that say to be so so much of this is some of the stuff you can improve just through good attitude and effort. And so what we've done, you know, here and consistently is just listen. But more importantly than than that, because that's just basic like empathy of just kind of like, look, if I find humanity in the people who work at every level of the organization, I will sit and listen and be empathetic to them and then work like the Dickens to make their day to day lives better. And so that was instilled into me. And so, you know, I pay that forward. But more than anything else, you got to promote women. What I found in, in the last three roles I've been is every time you've unlocked the potential of women in the organization, you get outsides returns. Um, but it's that's not just a nice thing. It's our country is graduating a disproportionate share of our valedictorians in high school are women, like not by mm-hmm. like a slight margin, yeah. by like significant right. margin. Right. And so if you're if you have the pleasure of having women on the team, it's just get them in bigger roles, promote them, pay them um, and give them bigger, bigger categories. Um, And I just ridden that wave of success of empowering women to have bigger roles. And it's and it's proven well. I love hearing that. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, then and I would say, what would you tell yourself as a kid? But now you've got kids that are young and impressionable ages right now. So what do you what do you tell them to guide them into being the best version of themselves? So quite frankly, I teach them how to introduce themselves as like a very tangible um, skill set that most people don't do. Like you do it very well and clearly you have a command um, um, you know, of your audience. But I, I start just very plainly of, of whenever you have the opportunity, it's just to be able to say, uh, in the case of my son, he's 15 years old. He has an interview today, in fact. He's running for student representative. And it's, it's uh, good morning. My name is Alex Dixon. I'm a 15-year-old sophomore at Dubuque Senior High School. It's a pleasure to be with you. I love that. So if you just if you just get that solid notion down, and so many people, and I interview a ton of people, cannot get that, let's say, 15-second kind of, you feel good about yourself, you deliver it, you say it, you know, kind of you own it. Because, quite frankly, when people, whether accept you to a college or accept you to a job, they know you don't know anything. But you better, on day one, be able to represent yourself and be able to articulate your story, even in that case, if it's just 10 seconds. And then throughout the course of your life, you just keep adding 15 more second intervals as your life gets more and more, let's say, developed. Um, and so just own that 10 to 15 seconds. And if you do that, everything else, people are going to say, oh, yeah, this person can get it. Like then, then the interview, everything else is downhill. 
Right, and it's not cockiness; it's confidence. It's it's showing who you are and, and being proud of it. And I think that's there's it. nothing wrong with that. That's it. I love it, Alex. You're amazing. Thank you so much for taking time and chatting with me. And I appreciate the time. I appreciate the opportunity. God bless and keep pushing. Thank you. I appreciate you. The break with Tanya Nyack, a Mudhouse Media production.